Okay, this morning we are on uh, we are on uh, unconditional election. I need to find where I start here. Unconditional election. Now, I thought before I got into that that I would uh, kind of give us a review since we had a couple of weeks off. What we are talking about, we call it TULIP because that helps us remember the five points. Um, and, and, and this just, just really involves uh, salvation all the way to eternity. Um, and so when we did T, that stood for total depravity. And if you remember, I, I, I preferred to refer to it as um, uh, either total uh, pollution or uh, total inability. Um, uh, sometimes total depravity gives forth that sense that humankind is as worse as it can be, is as bad as it can be, where total pollution or total inability means every aspect of humanity, uh, body, flesh, mind, soul, uh, thinking process, value process, has been polluted by sin. It's not completely broken, it's not completely undone, it's not completely wrong, and so even in non-Christian, non-believers, you have the semblance of the image of God in them. Thoughts of justice and will and care and trying and searching for love and all of those things. So total depravity. There is an order in this that, that really helps in the sense of salvation. Total depravity. Today we talk about the you, which is unconditional election. Wow, that's bad. That, that is actually my old English font. Unconditional election. Uh, and I would, again, prefer to change it to um, sovereign election. Um, because it, there are conditions of our election. There, there are conditions of us being chosen. Um, but the word unconditional really points to the fact that it's not conditioned upon us. God's choosing of a people to be his own is not conditioned upon how we respond, who we are, how much we try. And so that's the, that's the concept of unconditional election. And so in the end of your notes, I will talk about uh, necessity and reason. And one of the reasons I wanted to bring this back up is if we are totally depraved, if we are unable to find God on our own, if we are unable to change the status of our hearts, then salvation has to come from outside of us. God has to act outside of us. We are not able to save ourselves. We are not able to keep his law. We are not able to find him on our own. And so salvation has to come from outside. And, and so um, the necessity of understanding that we are depraved uh, makes this idea of how will we be saved, how will our pollution be rectified, how will that all happen? Well, God will choose and has chosen a, a 
certain number to be saved. Um, and that number is so certain that it can't grow or diminish. That number was so certain that before God created the world, he could have told you, this is how many human being, how many human souls will spend eternity with me in glory to the person. Um, and so that's, that's our topic this morning, unconditional election. So if we turn to our notes, um, I've got quite a few quotes in here this morning for us. Um, the first is actually from R.C. Sproul. If the Bible teaches anything over and over again, it's that salvation is of the Lord. This is at the heart of Reformed theology. It's not because we're interested in the abstract question of sovereign predestination, and we simply enjoy the intellectual titillation that speculation on this doctrine engenders. Rather, the focal point in this theology, as it was in the tea of total depravity, going back to Augustine, is grace. Tulip, the, the predestination, election, God's sovereignty, preaches his grace, celebrates his grace, points us to his grace. We are unable to save ourselves. So I want to give you three different dates under the defined, unconditional election defined. We've, in 1517, uh, that's what we would say is the start of the Protestant Reformation. Luther writes his 95 theses, nails them to the door of Wittenberg, and in, in his 95 theses, he is concerned about a lot of things. He is concerned about grace, salvation, how a, how a human being knows that they're saved, how that works. Um, and so that, that triggers the, uh, the Protestant Reformation. Um, in 1618, so almost 100 years later, uh, Arminium, Ar Arminium, Jacob Arminius uh, promotes a doctrine that is against the doctrine of the Reformers. And so there is a council held in 1618 to 1619 uh, called the Council of Dort, or the Synod of Dort. And that was all of the Dutch Reformed churches meant for two years uh, to discuss these challenges to the doctrine of the Reformation. Um, and then the Westminster Assembly, 1643 to 1653, uh, that's what we use for our standards of doctrine, Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, so all these things were affirmed over hundreds of years. And even, even the Protestant Reformation, uh, Luther goes back to the early church fathers and says, this was the doctrine of the apostles. And so we have lost that doctrine, and we, we, long, we want to move the church back to that doctrine. But what's cool about the Senate of Dort um, is you can read, uh, what, what do they call it there, um, the canons of Dort. You can go online and read the canons of Dort. It'll take you 15, 20 minutes. They were purposely written for the layperson. So whereas some of the Heidelberg Catechism, some of the Westminster stuff, you have to have your little lexicon there to figure out what they're saying. Really, with the Canons of Dort, you and I can sit there and read it uh, without needing a dictionary. And the other thing that's beautiful about the Canons of Dort is that the, um, the areas of theology are called heads, and then each head is full of these different articles. And at the end of the articles, there is 
uh, responses to all the different um, challenges to it or questions to it. Um, so it, it's, really, it's really great. The other, other thing is that it, it starts with theology that any, almost anyone who falls under that Christian banner would accept. So the theology in the, in the heads of the Council of Dort always starts very simple, and it, it's in a sense more ecumenical than any of the other uh, councils because it says things that the Roman Catholics would believe, the Anabaptists would believe, uh, the Arminians would believe, and then it works its way through those deeper, deeper, deeper. And that's really what theology does. Theology takes us deeper, deeper, deeper. And it's not just for the sake of going deeper. It's for the sake of answering objections. It's for the sake of us questioning reality. Um, and so I'm going to read, and I think I printed two of those from the first head of salvation and predestination. Where's my satchel? That's right here. <clears throat> Article 1. Do you have Article 1 in your notes? I think you do. So Article 1, this is the very start of the Canons of Dort. As all men have sinned in Adam, lie under the curse, and are deserving of eternal death, God would have done no injustice by leaving them all to perish and delivering them over to condemnation on account of sin. According to the words of the Apostle, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God, Romans 3.19, and verse 23, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. So that statement would kind of come up here. right? It would be the start. It is necessary for God to save us. Left on our own, we will face His judgment and His wrath. It is necessary that all mankind... And what's great, again, about Article 1 is a Roman Catholic would teach that, uh, a Presbyterian, a Baptist, even in our culture, just about every church that calls itself Christian would adhere to Article 1. Uh, I, we're not going to go through all the rest of the articles, but I, I think it'd be a great thing for you to do on your own. But as, as it progresses, it, it answers objections and it adds depth to the theology. So we come to Article 7, and I like this as far as a definition for what unconditional election is. Election is the unchangeable purpose of God, whereby before the foundation of the world he hath out of mere grace, according to the sovereign good pleasure of his own will, chosen from the whole human race, which had fallen through their own fault, from their primitive state of rectitude into sin and destruction, a certain number of persons to redemption in Christ." whom he from eternity appointed the mediator and head of the elect, and the foundation of salvation. This elect number, though by nature neither better nor more deserving than others, but with them involved in one common misery, God hath decreed to give to Christ, to be saved by him, and effectual, effectually to call and draw them to his communion by his word and spirit." This part of effectual call right, right there will be um, the I. Uh, the L will also come out of this, that, that there is a limit to the atonement of Christ. The I, that God's grace is irresistible. And the P, that, we will, that he perseveres. Um, effectually to call and draw them to his communion by his word and spirit. To bestow upon them true faith, justification, and sanctification. 
and having powerfully preserved them in the fellowship of his Son, finally to glorify them for the demonstration of his mercy and for the praise of his glorious grace. As it is written, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved. Ephesians 1, 4-6. And elsewhere, whom he did, did predestinate, them he also called. <clears throat> and whom he called, he also justified. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Romans eight thirty. So um, the definition of unconditional election. One reader was... was uh, saying that when Ulysses S. Grant, the northern general, when he demanded surrender, that the people said the U.S. meant unconditional surrender grant. Because when they surrendered to him, they could bring no, no expectations. They couldn't say, we'll surrender, but you've got to do this, or you've got to do that, or you've got to do this. He wouldn't accept any stipulations. It is a wholehearted, unconditional Uh, unconditional surrender. Um, And so when we use that word unconditional, again, I want to reiterate, it means God does not condition his election of people on us. It is conditioned upon his grace and mercy. So I put it down here in nine points. He chose us before the foundation of the world. He chose us in Jesus Christ. That'll be an important thing to remember. So many of the statements made to Christians are made in the sense that they are in Christ, that that he has enveloped them, um, his love to us in Christ. Chosen us according to God's good pleasure, that God takes great delight in saving us. Chosen freely, God is free in election, not under compulsion or because of us, sovereign election. Election is part of the unchangeable purposes of God. Um, Sorry, that's repetitive. Number six, the motive behind it is his good pleasure. I already said that. Uh, seven, election is for eternity. God elects us for eternal life forever. And eight, those chosen have no basis for pride. Rather, humility, humility should be the fruit. <clears throat> Nine, God's election predestination just doesn't start the process of salvation, but provides all that is necessary from beginning to the end. So we call this, um, this beginning to the end, we call this uh, the Ordo Salutis. Ordo Salutis, the order of salvation. Um, And the Ordo Salutis basically takes point to point at explaining how, how predestination works in the salvation of sinners. But again, predestination is more than that. Predestination encompasses God's purposes for everything in creation, Uh, not just our salvation, but our glorification. And and so God predetermines, and we see this in uh, passages like Romans 8 and Romans 9. Some of that's printed in your notes. Uh, Vividly in Ephesians 1, 
But what I like about Romans 8 and Romans 9 is when the Apostle Paul is explaining the doctrine, he goes back to the Old Testament and says, this is who God is. It's not some new thing. It's not some different way. It's not his response to us being unable to accept Jesus as our Savior and sending him to the throne room there in Jerusalem. No, this is his determination. Um, so uh, the Ordo Salutis, I, I think I'll go over that some other time, but, but it involves really all of the steps that are listed in here. We are, um, yeah, I'll, I'll go over that some other time. But um, furthermore, the basis of election. We ask ourselves on what basis uh, did God choose people to be his? Was it, for, was it God um, foreseeing our choice of him? Uh, did God choose you because he knew that you would eventually choose him? And so him knowing that beforehand, he makes all of these promises? Uh, no. <laughs> it was not conditioned upon who we were to become or what we would do um, uh, in, in us putting our trust in him. What basis? The basis is his mercy alone. Now, section two. Like I said, I don't have a um, I don't have a watch. Can somebody tell me what time it is? Okay. Um, Dustin, we flag me when it's when it's uh, nine forty-five. Thanks. Uh, defending it from Scripture. So in your outline, I put the biblical examples, Genesis 21, which the Apostle Paul refers to in Galatians 3. Genesis 25, the promises that the older will serve the younger. Exodus 33, I have mercy on whom I have mercy. Uh, back to Genesis 25, that's Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Uh, it's referred to also in Malachi 1, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Uh, the Scriptures teach it everywhere. Uh, the interesting thing is, nowhere in Scripture do we have this term, free will. We don't have that term. It doesn't show up in the Scriptures that we have this free will. Um, especially, not even, the, not even the thought of it shows up when talking about salvation. Um, it, you read in Acts, I mean, it's so vividly portrayed in the book of Acts uh, Peter preaches, Paul preaches, and then the text says, and all of those ordained for eternal life believed. Um, and so the apostle, uh, well, this is Luke, as Luke is talking about the spread of the gospel, wants to make sure that, that God gets all the glory for the spread of the gospel, that, that it, wasn't the it wasn't because Peter was so amazing, or Paul, or Barnabas, or Titus, so it wasn't because they were so amazing, it was because God was so gracious and merciful. Um, so, defending it from Scripture, I want to read some out of Romans 8, Romans 8, 28. And one reason I want to read this is here's a verse that is quoted all the time. So Christians of every stripe probably know this just as much as they do that Philippians 4, 13. We know that those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Right? Something bad happens and you post it on Facebook and 14 Christians put this verse in there. Cheer up. We know that God is working all things for good for those who, you know, uh, people that are reprobate get these verses from Christians, right? Uh, cheer up. All things are working together for good. What does the rest of it say? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So it's not, we haven't made up a doctrine. 
we didn't make it up to be divisive. We made it up to be true to the Scriptures. That word is in there. God predestined. The Greek word means predetermined. Set in course. Those he foreknew. Foreknew means foreloved. Knowing in the sense that Adam knew his wife. God knows us. God knows all about us. It says over and over before we've even been born. Uh, he predestined to be conformed. There's purpose behind it. That's why I was going to write the Order of Salutis. It ends with this term glorification, that, that God has purpose in us. He is taking us from sinful rebels. He is treating us as sons, and he is making us like his son when we, when we are glorified. And he's pointing to that here. Uh, he's predestined us to be conformed to the image of son, that we might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. So the apostle is going through. Here's how God saved people. He predestined them. He, he knew them before they were born. He predestined them. Uh, and when the time comes, the Spirit breathes in them. He calls them with his irresistible call. They are justified, and eventually they will also be glorified. Um, he goes on then to answer objections. And this is what's powerful about Paul's arguments. Paul presents a truth, and then he anticipates what are, going to be, what are the objections going to be. So one of the, one of the really the greatest defenses of predestination and unconditional election is that Paul anticipates the questions that you and I are going to ask. So it's obvious that he is teaching the doctrine that is going to offend people, not just Americans. He is teaching a doctrine that's going to make people say, wait a minute, what about the promises he made to Israel? Wait a minute, God's being unfair, right? He, that, that's, that's what people say about this doctrine. We try to create God in our own mind. We think of ourselves in his place, and we think, well, I wouldn't have done that if I was God. And so uh, the fact that Paul anticipates those questions to me and others is saying, this is the doctrine he's preaching. This is the doctrine he's teaching. So when he gets to chapter 9, um, he is answering that question. What about all the promises he made to Israel? Did, are those promises failing? Did God, did God change his mind? Did he go back on his word? And in Romans 9, he says, No, but when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, verse 11, though they were not yet born, had done nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue. And then he states it right there, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Tough. Tough passages for us. There, there are at least two reasons we don't like the doctrine of election. Um, at least two reasons. I might have put those further on in your notes. Uh, yeah, I think in the back it says unconditional election is hard to accept. Number one, it, it fundamentally challenges human pride. This doctrine forces us to acknowledge that the entire work of salvation is God's work and His alone. Hard to accept because it is teaching us that no matter how hard we tried, we could have never saved ourselves. 
But second, and this is one I hear the most, it seems to make God unfair. We have mixed up in our minds fairness with envy. We are a generation that promotes envy as fairness. And so if God chooses to save the left side, your right side, of three rivers, our, our, our minds think that is not fair to this side. Our minds are drawn to it's not fair to this side. However, what election teaches is that God is absolutely just and righteous to send us all to hell. He is absolutely just and righteous. He set up a world that was perfect. We sinned and we continue to sin against him. And as he set up the system, he set up the system of justice. And he said, if you break my law, you will die. And so we forget that, that part of the doctrine. That's why it's important that we start with this total depravity, total pollution. We don't see it because we are a polluted people living among a polluted people. We're probably the less polluted people that we live among. And so it's hard for us to even grasp the fact that, that yes, apart from this work of Christ, we deserve his wrath. Um, and so that's, that's what he's pointing out here. Um, the the, the uh, older will serve the younger, as it's written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And it's such a great example because he says it was the same father and the same mother. And the father was chosen. One minute left. Dad gum. <laughs> uh, and and it, it's before they were born. Right, before, before they were born. God said, my purpose is to elect one and not the other. Um, he also then answers the question of uh, fairness. Um, And he talks about potter and clay. And so that's just another way of explaining when, um, and again, it draws us back to Isaiah, when Isaiah is looking at the, the pottery being made. And, and he, he says, notice how uh, the potter starts something and you don't know what it's going to be. And so he says, look at all of creation in the sense that God has the absolute right to make 15 pots and decide before those 15 pots are even made that 10 of those pots, five of those pots, are going to end up with him in glory forever. Um, the others will suffer his justice. Um, let me just, uh, I'm going to close by reading this, this portion and then... Um, golly, I feel like we ran out of time. This, this book... Uh, the Reformed Doctrine of Predestination by Lorraine Bettner is really amazing. And if you have trouble with this doctrine, I will loan you this book, but it's out of print. So I will loan it to you and you will give it back to me or you'll face the wrath and curse of God. Uh, objections. He has, he has a whole section, uh, about 100 pages, just answering the objections. Does it teach fatalism? No, it doesn't. It teaches community. Does it, uh, that, that God says, here's how I'm, I'm, I'm going to save a people, but I'm not letting you know. That would be fatalism. Uh, I'm, I'm including you in my work of saving my elect. 
Uh, is it inconsistent with man's free agency and the moral responsibility of man that it makes God the author of sin, discourages motive, motives for evangelism, represents God as a respecter of persons or as unjustly partial? Uh, it's unfavorable to good morality that it precludes a sincere offer of the gospel to the non-elect, that it contradicts the universalistic scripture passages. So um, all of that stuff has been answered and has been um, re responded to uh, here is what it teaches us at the heart of Reformed doctrine, the heart of predestination. God saves sinners. It is all of Him. We beg Him to, to save our loved ones, our children. Uh, we, we beg Him, we plead Him, and that is part of His plan working out in us that we go to Him. I present the gospel. I try to make sure I do it every week in full assurance that sometimes God will bring His elect into our doors and we'll be able to witness his saving work. Uh, let me pray for us. Thanks, Father, for your word. Lord, we know that lots of pastors and teachers choose to not preach this, God, this doctrine, choose to skip it over. I don't know how they would preach Ephesians. I don't know how they would preach Romans, uh, where it is just front and center that we would think great thoughts of our salvation. Um, that we would understand the depth of your mercy, that we would be humble followers of Christ, that we would worship you fervently. And so we pray, Lord, that that would be the result of our diving in to some of the deeper philosophies, theologies of our salvation. Help us, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.